The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Gaining an Advantage Over NSCLC, How to Achieve the Greatest Benefit with Immunotherapy from Advanced to Early Disease. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash RGK860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, everyone, and good evening. My name is Dr. Rupal Basuroy, and I am the Executive Director of Research at Longevity Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us for this immunotherapy CME in partnership with Peerview. Today, I'm joined with my colleague, Dr. Amy Moore, who is the Vice President of Global Engagement and Patient Partnerships. Amy and I are really sad that we are not in person with you at ASCO this year and hope your ASCO is going really well. At Longevity Foundation, we have two goals. The first goal is to improve outcomes for people diagnosed with lung cancer. And the second goal is to improve how people are living with the disease. At Longevity Foundation, we consider optimal care for lung cancer to be biomarker driven. And immunotherapy is a key component of biomarker driven care for lung cancer. We define biomarker driven care starting right from pre-diagnosis to diagnosis, including treatment and potential progression. And the foundation has programs and services along this entire spectrum of care. To start off, we have a wide plethora of survivorship and support services. On the left, what you see is a lung cancer helpline that's staffed Monday through Friday at different times. And you can see the phone number there to access our helpline. We also have peer-to-peer -peer support in the form of lifeline support partners and clinical trial ambassadors. In addition, we have a robust clinical trial finder, which is web-based, and it helps patients with lung cancer navigate the clinical trial space. In terms of our patient education services, we firmly believe that patients and caregivers learn through different mechanisms, and this is the reason why we provide patient education through different formats. To start off our very comprehensive Lung Cancer 101 websites, to complement our websites, we have videos on specific topics. We also have booklets. And on the right, what you see is a tear-off sheet which has questions to ask your doctor. All of our patient education resources can be accessed through this website that you see on the top. Now, what you see on the left are our comprehensive booklets, including a booklet on immunotherapy. And these booklets provide detailed information about different treatments, different types of lung cancers, for patients or their caregivers. Now, what you see in the middle are brochures and flyers. Now, brochures and flyers are simplified versions of what you find in the comprehensive booklets and summaries. And last but not least, what you see on the right are our lung cancer basics. These are our health literate education materials available both in English as well as Spanish. And with that, I'll hand it over to my colleague, Dr. Amy Moore. Thanks, Upal. As you heard, we have a lot of uh, different educational materials, and this goes to our website where we provide a lot of detailed information explaining immunotherapy, what the immune system is. We also provide nice videos. This one is, in fact, about immunotherapy and explains what it is and how it works on the lower left there. As Upal said, we have recently uh, updated our immunotherapy booklet. We know that immunotherapy is now moving from late stage uh, lung cancer into the early stage disease setting. And so our recent updates address some of those advances that are occurring as well. And then on the right, you can see that there's the uh, patient journey 
um, sheet where patients can uh, find specific questions to ask their doctors according to where they are along that journey continuum. And again, these booklets are available in both Spanish and Mandarin, and you can access them at the website shown. I also want to touch on a more recent offering for our patient provider community called the Longevity Lung Cancer Patient Gateways. These are tailored portals for people with lung cancer broken out by biomarker or by subtype of lung cancer. And it's where patients can get more information about their type of lung cancer, connect with their community and access educational materials and resources. So to date, we have launched gateways for KRAS, Regeneral Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, ALK, and EGFR, and we'll be delivering additional gateways this spring on rare mutations and fusions, as well as small cell lung cancer. So this is a great resource, again, for patients and for providers um, to allow their patients to learn about the latest going on in these particular types of uh, lung cancer. So we encourage you to check that out. And again, we thank Peerview for the opportunity to partner with you on this CME today and hope that uh, it is informative and that you again have a productive ASCO. Thank you. Evening, everybody. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming tonight. Our topic tonight is on lung cancer. There's a lot of developments in lung cancer. Things change virtually monthly in lung cancer, and we have a great program today with some great people and then me. Um, I'm David Carbone. I'm a medical oncologist uh, at The Ohio State University, and I'll be the moderator tonight. And I will uh, like my other speakers to uh, introduce themselves. And let's start with Julie, who is with us live, but virtually. Julie, would you introduce yourself? Hi, good evening. I'm Dr. Julie Bremer. I'm a professor of oncology at the Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center in Baltimore, Maryland. All right, thanks, Dr. Bremer. Uh, Dr. Peters? Hi, Sons Peters. I am the chair of medical oncology at the Lausanne University Hospital in Switzerland. Yeah, Dr. Sepezi? And uh, my name is Boris Sepezi. I'm a thoracic surgeon at uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center. So we'll start with uh, two portions of this program. The first part will be uh, a discussion of some recent changes and issues in, in immunotherapies for advanced and metastatic lung cancer, but the majority of the program will focus on expanding those options and bringing them into uh, earlier stages of non-small cell. And as I said, we'll have uh, opportunity for questions and answers and, and discussion and thoughts about you know, where the field is headed, and we really would appreciate your, your input and discussion there. So longevity is, is a major partner here, and longevity is uh, the largest funder, uh, foundation funder of, of research in lung cancer, has been around uh, for many years, founded by uh, Andrea Ferris, um, whose mom died of lung cancer, and they've really been one of the leaders in the patient uh, foundation uh, space supporting patients as well as uh, uh, lung cancer research. And also, uh, Upal is, is, I think, listening tonight. Uh, and he was the one in the video you saw uh, a few minutes ago. 
they are in addition to uh, their functions with with physicians they have a very active patient uh, support uh, portal and so you should consider uh, pointing your patients in their direction uh, for their uh, patient related uh, aids on, on their website and they they hold uh, events around the country so that this is their uh, examples of screenshots of their patient-facing uh, uh, immunotherapy uh, educational material that's on the website. So we'd like to start out with the discussion of metastatic disease um, with Dr. Bramer, who's uh, very well known and published the, the seminal New England Journal paper on nivolumab years ago is currently the the chair of the ECOG uh, Thoracic Committee, a uh, very influential uh, leader, thought leader in this field. Julie? All right. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for having me. We're going to uh, briefly discuss advanced disease, but like Dr. Carbone said, the exciting changes most recently are moving the immunotherapy in early-stage disease. But we'll first... Uh, lay the foundation and uh, show you the lay of the land in metastatic disease and also briefly just touch on some of the new data that has come out or will be coming out here at ASCO. So why are we discussing this topic? You know, there are some gaps and opportunities for improvement. We know that immunotherapy either alone or in combination has demonstrated improvement in outcomes, including overall survival and first-line treatment for non-small cell lung cancer. And as these options and combinations are approved, there are multiple options, and it is a challenge for us to navigate amongst the options about what is best for our patients in the clinic. And um, just for an example, a retrospective analysis of real-world patient data from the Flatiron database found that about 20% of patients actually only received first-line chemotherapy without IO, and these patients tended to have squamous cell histology and low PD-L1 expression, so less than uh, 50%. So again, I wanted to go over some cases, uh, look at some variations in practice, um, and try to improve uh, our knowledge uh, based on this. Obviously, in the first-line treatment setting, multiple options have been approved since 2016. You know, this is exciting uh, areas of change, starting off with single-agent pembrolizumab, then in combination with chemotherapy, uh, particularly for non-squamous cell histology, including a, a four-drug regimen that was approved based on the Empower 150 for non-squamous cell histology. And then moving uh, pembrolizumab into the first-line treatment setting in pdl one positive disease, and then various other combinations, and now even IO-IO combination, nivolumab and ipilimumab, which in the U.S. is approved for patients with PDL1 positive disease based on the Checkmate 227 study, and then the Checkmate uh, 9LA combining chemotherapy with Nevo and IPI. And now we even have more single agent therapy options in the first line treatment setting with atezolizumab and simiplumab, now rounding out uh, 
different options in the first line treatment for patients with PD-L1 high disease. So obviously we look forward to continuing to uh, improve options for our patients. And so that's why I wanted to go over some of these cases. So everyone get ready. I will be asking some questions. Now, navigating the broad range of immunotherapy options, you know, as we just talked about, uh, I use besides um, histology, PDL1 positivity. Uh, so higher, the higher the PDL1, uh, the more likely your disease is responding to single agent immunotherapy. And obviously, for patients with PDL1 high disease, um, we have these different three different PD-1 or PDL one antibodies that are now approved for use. Clearly, in patients with low PDL one or PDL one native disease, we uh, typically recommend a chemotherapy combination, and we have various different combinations based on uh, histology, either squamous, which uh, is really relegated to pembrolizumab plus uh, a taxane plus platinum, a combination, but in non-scrim cell histology, we have multiple options. And then again, uh, like I said, uh, nivolumab and ipilimumab is approved for use in uh, PDL1 positive disease, but does have compendia listing uh, in the NCCN, uh, regardless of PDL1 positivity. So I need some help. So for PDL1 high disease, this is a gentleman that I recently saw in clinic. This is a 72-year-old gentleman who quit smoking about 35 years ago and was found to have a 3.4 centimeter right middle lobe mass on a coronary calcium scan. And uh, his physician went ahead um, and ordered a PET scan. And at that time, he was found to have a 3.4 centimeter right middle lobe mass right hyalur subcranial adenopathy, as well as bone metastasis. His MRI of his brain was negative, um, and he has some comorbidities, hypertension, gout, hyperlipidemia, but really was uh, asymptomatic at the time of diagnosis. But now, in retrospect, he's noting some mild left upper back pain. Uh, pathology, uh, he underwent an EBUS and was found to have metastatic poorly, diff or poorly differentiated carcinoma, having both glandular and squamous features. He has patchy TTF1 uh, positivity, but negative for P40 and napsin A. Mutations have come back with the KRAS G13D and his PDL1. Uh, tumor proportion score is 100%, and his PET scan uh, is notable on the right. So, what treatment would you recommend for this patient? Single agent PD-1 or PDL1 blockade, two, nivolumab and ipilimumab, three, pemetrexide carboplatinum pembrolizumab, or four, sotorasib, five, I'm not sure. So um, let's just talk briefly, and I'll kind of go through my thought process, but I'd love to hear uh, Dr. Peters, Dr. Carbone, and even our thoracic uh, surgeon would love to hear your, your thoughts. Um, my thought uh, in this particular patient with high PDL1, 
um, and uh, not a ton of disease um, and pretty asymptomatic. Um, my thought was to go with single agent PD-1 or PDL-1 blockade. Now, obviously, these other options are appropriate, though I gave some pause uh, on uh, the pemetrexid, carboplatinum, and pembrolizumab, just in the fact that he had glandular as well as squamous features. Um, so I might, if I decide to use a chemotherapy combination, I might go with a taxane, platinum, and pembrolizumab. Um, and Sotorasib right now just has an indication for second-line treatment, and he does not have a KRAS G12C mutation. It's G13D. And then, obviously, nivolumab and nipolimumab could be an option as well um, if uh, he uh, uh, wanted. However, the uh, nivolumab and nipolimumab, when you look at a breakdown by PDL1 status, it has a very similar response rate as well as hazard ratio compared to a single agent PD1 or PDL1 blockade. I don't know, Dr. Peters, would you use something else or what are your thoughts? Thanks a lot, Julie. Uh, I would fully agree, right? There are a few circumstances in which, uh, in my practice, I would uh, give up the idea of uh, having a chemo-free regimen in high PDL1, of course. There are some situations which we can sometimes discuss. This is about the need of having a very fast effect response uh, relief of uh, pain or symptom. And this is what we call the dangerous situation where any growth, any time, any delay might lead to progression and death. But I must admit this situation in daily practice are extremely rare. So maybe five, 10 percent of our patients need chemo with the IO and high PDL1. So I fully agree with you. I think that frontline strategy for these patients, whatever the meta-analysis we can see these days at ASCO, I think we have to also think about quality of life and daily life is good when you can, uh, I would say, delay chemotherapy. Yeah, I also, Our, huh? Go ahead, Dr. Carbone. Uh, sorry. Uh, I, I would also fully agree. Clearly, Sotorasib is wrong in this patient. The other options you could argue about, but you have to be clear that, that Sotorasib is for G12C only. And it's not just the second line issue, but it's, it's a completely wrong option. The, uh, I would uh, choose for this patient, single agent PD-1 uh, blockade. Um, Ipinevo may have a reasonable response rate and outcomes in this population, but it does have more toxicity. And I do think that uh, we have to make that balance of efficacy and toxicity in our patients. And that applies to the chemo-pembro uh, combination as well. The response rate is slightly higher uh, with chemo-pembro. So like Solange was saying, if you have a one millimeter right main stem bronchus opening and if it, if it grew a bit, they collapse their whole right lung, then, then that may be a reason for getting a little bit higher probability of response with the chemo-pembro. But that is a, an uncommon situation. And in my practice, I would tend to use radiation if it really was an impending emergency, because there your response rates are even higher than chemo-pembro. So I would say most of the time I use the single-agent PD-1. 
I, I agree. I think the uh, interesting data this year at ASCO so far is um, the FDA pooled analysis com uh, looking at single agent IO versus chemotherapy IO in the patients with high PDL1. And in there, they showed there really wasn't a statistical difference from an overall survival standpoint between the two regimens in this patient population. However, it did trend, tend to be higher. The median survival was more like 25 months versus 20 months, uh, 25 months in the chemo IO uh, treated patients versus the single agent or this IO only um, uh, group. Um, Interestingly, though, like uh, Dr. Carbone said, uh, in this pooled analysis, it was a significant higher response rate. Um, and interestingly, in some subgroups, the elderly patients actually did better with single-agent immunotherapy. So obviously, this is a, cav a lot of caveats to a pooled analysis, but very interesting data. Can I make a comment on that, Julian? Yes. Uh, yes. In general, I'm trying to avoid median survival as, as the metric of success uh, for uh, these uh, trials. And I really think that we should be looking more toward landmark survivals, uh, out three, four, five-year landmark survivals uh, for our metastatic regimens. And you'd never hear that statement 20 years ago because nobody would be alive. But now we're seeing significant uh, tails of curves and survivals. And I actually think these two regimens would have very similar tails of curves. Absolutely. And, and the medians can be misleading, especially with immunotherapy trials where you tend to have a rapid drop-off with immunotherapy. Those are great, great points. Definitely with a five-year survival of 30% uh, percent, uh, in single-agent IO in this patient population, you know, I, I, it's hard to beat, and we'd love to see some long-term survival data in the chemo-IO combinations. All right. Now I, we're going to go ahead and recheck how would you like, let's see how uh, you do from a repeat, see if we can convince you one way or another. So based on what you heard, what treatment would you now recommend for this patient? One, single-agent PD-1 or PDL one blockade. Two, nivolumab and nipilimumab. Three, pemetrexid, carboplatinum, pembrolizumab. Four, sotorasib. Or five, I'm still not sure. All right, so let's uh, take the second case for PDL1 intermediate. So this is a 77-year-old woman who presented with progressive uh, shortness of breath on exertion and hoarseness. She has a 10-pound weight loss, cough, left neck discomfort. She actually first saw an ENT who, uh, because of hoarseness, uh, found a paralyzed left vocal cord, um, and her physician then ordered a CT scan showing bilateral pulmonary nodules and bulky mediastinal adenopathy. An EBUS was positive for adenocarcinoma, TTF1 positive. PDL1 uh, tumor proportion score was uh, 10%. She actually has a 10-pack year smoking history and quit about 25 years ago. Her mutation testing came back with a KRAS G12C comb mutation with P53 TMB high. 
And before starting therapy, she was admitted for rapidly worsening shortness of breath and was found to have a large pericardial effusion, which required emergent paracentesis and pericardial window placement. So she finally comes back to your office after being admitted and you, what do you recommend for therapy? One, single agent PD-1 or PD-L1 blockade. Two, nivolumab and nipilimumab. Three, pemetrexid, carboplatinum, pembrolizumab. Four, sotorasib. Or five, I'm not sure. All right. So from my standpoint, um, I gave actually pemetrexid, carboplatinum, and pembrolizumab. I did not go to sotorasib up front based on FDA approval. Um, and uh, nivolumab and nipilimumab could be used, but I felt that I really needed that 60% or close to 60% response rate. Um, certainly, single agent PD-1 or PDL1 blockade could be used, um, but I get a little, definitely get a little nervous uh, based even on some older ASCO uh, pooled data from the FDA that did show that chemotherapy and IO did perform better. That than single agent PD-1 in patients with PDL one uh, low or min intermediate um, positivity. Uh, Dr. Peters? Thank you. Um, an interesting case because when you look at this patient who has a very old smoking history and what we call the, I wouldn't say a light smoking, but it was at the limit on the 10 pack years, but all the feature of a heavy smoker, a Keras mutation, a high TMB. So let's consider that uh, the patient lied on his, uh, her smoking history <laughs> because it doesn't look to be compatible. If he was a smoker, well, we never a see that. <laughs> so, well, let's, let's say smoking habit was a feature of this tumor. Because otherwise, you always question, remember, uh, the only time where you should think about chemo is when a patient is never smoker. Because the number of new antigens to present to the immune system is low. But it might not be the case of this patient. So here I would also probably, in the strange history, favor chemo IO because it's a safe way to go. If you cannot make the truth come out, I would use chemo IO. I still like a lot, for me, the Nivo EP. I'm convinced about the idea that uh, this combination, which is still chemo-free, would the disease not be threatening again because some progression or inflammatory process can happen, gives rise to a nice plateau of more than 20% long-term, which is really something to me, which is attractive uh, for me and for the patient, uh, I will still wonder if CTLA-4 doesn't bring this plateau slightly higher than without. So uh, 227 or 189, EP-NIVO versus chemo-IO, if really he's a smoker, I would favor EP-NIVO. And one thing which is important that, um, about Sotorasim, it's not only about the fact that it was it's at the limit of the competitive response rate with chemo IO, but and not only because it's a second line treatment, but also because when you allow your patient to progress one once, you might use your lose your patient when he progresses, right? And if you start with sotorasib, you remove from this patient this chance to be long-term controlled by immunotherapy, which is between 10, 20, 25%. So you should always start with the best hope and the best option first, just not to remove this chance. So even if sotorasib is pretty good drug, it's a second-line treatment there. So there's a reason why you're president of ESMO. <laughs> so that's a really good point that everything is a response rate the, because sotorasib median progression-free survival is, is quite short and, and we don't know 
what the three, four, five year landmark survival is, but it's really low. So I would definitely start with IO in this case. Yeah, so interestingly, that's what we, we actually started with uh, IO chemotherapy. Well, IO uh, chemo she, is what I mean. Yeah, uh, we did IO chemotherapy. She did well for about uh, 15 to 16 months, and then we put her on a trial with a combination with sotorasib, and she's, she's gotten about nine months now progressing, so about kind of like what you would have thought. So based on her discussions, what would you now – um, recommend one single agent PD1 or PDL1 blockade, two nivolumab and ipilimumab, three pemetrexid carboplatinum pembrolizumab, four sotorasib, or five. We've just confused you. All right. And this last case. So this is a 77 year old smoker presented to the emergency room with one month history of, of progressive confusion. MRI was positive for a three-centimeter frontal lobe metastasis. As sometimes happens, they go straight to neurosurgery. Uh, he had this resected, was found to have a solitary squamous cell carcinoma, um, and uh, PDL1 was negative. Once he got back onto the floor, a CT scan revealed a large left lung lesion eroding into the left chest wall, as well as some right rib metastases. And um, once in the office, he was back to his baseline post-surgery, uh, ended up having post-op radiation therapy. He um, has comorbidities, including COPD and coronary artery disease. And so what would you recommend for treatment for this patient with PDL1 negative disease? Single agent PD1 or PDL1 blockade, nivolumab and ipilimumab. Three, pemetrexid, carboplatinum, and pembrolizumab. Four, paclitaxel, carboplatinum, ipilimumab, and ipilimumab for two cycles, followed by nivolumab and ipilimumab, or five, I'm not sure. All right. Well, my thought process through this, through this patient with PDL1 native disease, obviously single agent PD1 or PDL1 blockade in the first line treatment setting for PDL1 native disease is really not appropriate. The pemetrexid, carboplatinum, and pembrolizumab I ruled out because he has squamous cell carcinoma. And so that leaves us with either two nivolumab and ipilimumab or four paclitaxel carboplatinum, nivolumab, and ipilimumab for two cycles followed by nevo-ipi. I did not include um, the... Um, uh, pack, uh, taxane, carboplatinum, and pembrolizumab as an option, but certainly that could be an option as well. Um, I think in the U.S., um, uh, based on FDA approvals, I tend to lean in squamous cell PDL1 negative to the Checkmate 9LA data of paclitaxel, carboplatinum, nivolumab, and nivolumab. I've been very uh, great, greatly surprised. Uh, getting patients through two cycles of chemo with this regimen has, is quite easy. And so actually that's what we did. Um, Dr. Peters, your thoughts on this case? 
Thanks a lot. Um, that's, that's a point of debate. Do you need the CTLA4 component, right? So the basic regimen will have chemo, it's squamous, and uh, the checkpoint anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-1 is certainly needed. The question is CTLA4, yes or not? I'm pretty convinced that there are few circumstances in which um, it has been consistently demonstrated that it might add something uh, even long term. The first circumstance is precisely these PDL1 negative tumors, which always do slightly lower in terms of result, PFS, OS, and response rate as compared to all the other categories, whatever you use, except when you use CTLA4. And that's what the topic of the Nobel Prize of Jim Allison. When you give CTLA4, your tumor will immediately result in what we call an interferon gamma signature response and expression of PDL1. So you compensate for that. The other thing is brain meds. We don't know why. It's a mechanistic, probably due to the microenvironment modification uh, of, uh, of the tumor. But uh, it's interesting to see that CTAD4 adds a lot of efficacy against brain meds in melanoma first, and now also potentially in brain, brain, brain uh, in lung cancer with brain metastasis. So for this patient who presents with negative P1 brain meds, well, I think 9LE is uh, pretty appropriate. Dr. Carbone, your thoughts? <clears throat> uh, very much along the same line. Um, I'm not 100% convinced that the two cycles of chemo adds very much uh, in this setting, mm -hmm. but it is the only approved uh, setting. The, uh, it should be pointed out that in Keno 407, which is the chemo pembro in squamous, in the PDL1 negative subset, in the final survival analysis of Keno 407, there was no survival benefit adding Pembro to Carbotax, whereas the um, survival with both the Ipinevo and the Chemo-Ipinevo uh, studies showed very durable uh, survival in this subset. So I would strongly favor, even if you had Carbotax Pembro as an option, I would favor uh, one of the Nevo-Ipi uh, combos. And there's now good retrospective data about durable uh, intracranial control with that combination, as you point out. All right. Interestingly, that's what we did, and he actually uh, did extremely well with the CTLA-4 uh, PD-1 combination for uh, several years because he was actually on a trial. So, but now, based on what we've discussed what would you now do for this patient? One, single agent PD-1 or PDL one blockade. Two, nivolumab and ipilimumab. Three, pemetrexid carboplatinum pembrolizumab. Four, paclitaxel carboplatinum nevo-ipi times two cycles, followed by nevo-ipi. Or five, we continue to confuse you. Thank you very much. I just uh, wanted to just briefly wrap up. Uh, there are several algorithms for metastatic disease with no ac actionable genomic alterations. Um, this is one basic one uh, using PDL1, but also one to uh, note uh, this amazing treatment algorithm that also includes information about survival, progression-free survival, and response rate uh, developed by Dr. Desai and Dr. Ho that is, uh, are, are some practice aids that is in your information here tonight that you can directly download this uh, algorithm. So, and it's great and handy if you need something to refer back to. 
And certainly in uh, here in ASCO 2022, like the data that we talked about before with the pooled analysis from the FDA and patients with PDL1 high, there will be some long-term survival um, um, outputs here this year for Checkmate 227, a five-year survival outcomes in um, that, and that will be presented at the poster session on Monday. And then also Checkmate 9LA will have a three-year update um, in, uh, that will also be presented at the poster session on Monday. So I'm going to hand it back over and now uh, let our folks expand immunotherapy into early uh, stage settings for non-small cell lung cancer. Thanks, everyone. Right. Thank you, Dr. Bramer. Now, uh, now, now we'll move on to moving these treatments into earlier stage with Dr. Peters. Thank you. So it is a, a very... I would say innovative uh, field of, uh, of, uh, of development of immunotherapy, not only in lung cancer across diseases. We'd like to uh, look at the opportunity of adding to surgery, surgery with creative intents, which remain the primary treatment for, for all patients with resectable stage one and three A. We'd like to discuss how we could improve the current outcome of chemo and surgery by uh, adding immunotherapy. Uh, there have been uh, lots of barriers in the development of adjuvant treatment in lung cancer, probably the lack of new strategies, but also the problem of the lack time you always have to face when you launch an adjuvant trial. In lung cancer, probably little less than in breast cancer, but still it's a long-lasting trials. So we tried also to identify new endpoints. How can you measure the benefit before you observe relapse in a minority of patients, you hope? This will be discussed by the surgeon too. How can you potentially define innovative endpoints and of course how we can in that setting work better together it's not only about chemo or immunotherapy it's about how it can combine with the other colleagues so now we'll discuss how we are making together this transition to uh, from the data presented by Julie to early stage and how we can try to manage the sequencing and the multimodality the multiprofessionality which is needed to drive the new decision making process so basically, uh, this is a summary. I love this slide because if you have it, you have everything there. At the time being, it will change over time. But we have in lung cancer a certain number of adjuvant trials and a certain number of what I would say neoadjuvants. Remember that in the neoadjuvant, some call it also neoadjuvant or perioperative, but basically something before surgery. So if you look at the adjuvants, there are two ways of giving adjuvant immunotherapy. The two ways are with or without chemotherapy. So we had one trial which was mandated adjuvant chemotherapy. It is the IAM Power 10, I will discuss later on, and has given results that we will discuss later on. So, so the other option is to let the investigator decide for adjuvant chemotherapy, and this is all the other trials. Keep in mind there's a more or less one trial by a big immunotherapy company, and in that setting we have, uh, as you can see, uh, three additional ongoing trials with one having result, the Keynote 091, also called the PULSE trial. So already two trials to discuss with you today. In the neoadjuvant approach, we have a pure neoadjuvant trial with immuno and chemo given before surgery and stop 
nothing more, which has given results, and we'll discuss it extensively because it's a model in the field today. And we have a certain number at the time being four, even five or six, if you look at smaller trials, uh, what we call neoadjuvant perioperative, because after surgery, you continue usually for one year altogether the immunotherapy component. So that's what we have. As you can see, three can be today described, but you can also imagine that in the next two years, the whole story will be very complex because you will have all these trials, of course, with differences that we will have to manage all together to find a consensus. So let's start with the upper part, the adjuvant. Why would you do adjuvant uh, therapy rather than neoadjuvant? What pushes you to do it after surgery? So first of all, the surgeon, because you don't impose a delay. The surgeon can resect. In some countries, uh, the resections come before any discussion. So surgeon first, uh, some patients also might feel a bit better knowing that the tumor is out. Um, it can be uh, interesting to think that in the beginning of neoadjuvant checkpoints, people were fearing that the modification, maybe fibrosis, might make resection difficult. So there was some question mark, and you'll see it has been more or less solved. We know that adjuvant works. Adjuvant chemo saves lives. We'll discuss it later on. And in melanoma, there was this idea, and I don't think it's so right today, that immunotherapy might be better if you face a small tumor burden. So like vaccine, they work better if the tumor is small. Is it true there? It's difficult to say, but it was a concept. So this is chemo. Oh, you know it by heart. I won't spend too much time. But remember that chemo is saving lives but not so many, many. Uh, it's the same magnitude as is breast cancer. And absolutely, if you give chemotherapy to patients, you will uh, save uh, a certain number of patients with an absolute improvement of 5% of survivors uh, long-term. 5% is still significant. It's black or white, but our curves remain very bad if you look at our survival, right? We have been trying to uh, give immunotherapy to patients. It's an all-days trial already, the Magritte. Magritte was a vaccine against MAGE A3, which had given very nice results in a phase two trial uh, and was uh, tested in the adjuvant setting. And as you can see, a vaccine alone, at least at the time it was performed, was not sufficient. Uh, and this is, as I said before, the key adjuvant trials. What I want you to look at, because we spoke endpoints, is in these adjuvant trials, all happening with the randomization after surgery, you have to keep in mind that if one endpoint is common and joined to all of these trials, is a disease-free survival. It's not very typical. You're in a curative setting. We all would like to have OS. But as I said before, we all hope that one is a surrogate of the other one, and this will bring progress to the patient faster because you can read DFS. The other thing that you have to keep in mind when we compare neoadjuvant to adjuvant is here the staging is a good staging because when you do look at your stage, you have your surgical stage. So if you say 1B, it's 1B. It's not the pets betraying you, right? So keep in mind that here the staging is a surgical staging which is not the case when you look at neoadjuvant where the staging is a radiological staging, okay? So this is one, I uh, just wanted to complete the adjuvant trials by what we call the next generation of trial. So looking at potentially customizing the adjuvant treatment, particularly the immunotherapy part, by the presence of what we call minimal residual disease, MRD, which is found in the plasma of the patient after surgery. Uh, the idea is maybe only the ones with MRD benefit from immunotherapy. You'll see later on, we are not very skilled today in being sensitive for MRD, and you will be very disappointed to learn that the Mermed 1 program was abandoned because the feasibility of such, you know, MRD measurement is today not something that we can bring into a randomized trial. It will continue, huh? but it's too early. 
Okay. So let's move to the two trials I have to present to you in the adjuvant setting. The first one is atezolizumab in the adjuvant setting. So as you can see, these are patients, uh, we look at the 7th TNM, uh, stage 1B to 3A. So 1B is more than 4 centimeters and zero tumors. The uh, idea is to, of course, uh, we don't, uh, we, we, we accepted in that trial EGFR and ALK, you will see the data. Uh, and uh, of course, you let uh, in that trial the investigator decide which chemotherapy, but remember that the chemotherapy was mandatory at least one cycle. Patients were randomized after surgery plus mandatory chemo to atezolizumab for one year versus best supportive care. And as you can see on the right hand side of this, uh, of this slide, the statistical design, this is the charm of it, huh? the statistical design was pretty complex. It's what we call a hierarchical design where every endpoint when it is met can redistribute its alpha to the next le level. It's a good way to move apart if by mistake you miss the first step, everything is ruined. So you need to know what you do. But here it was, as you can see, the endpoint is DFS, but the DFS in positive PDL1 stage 2 to 3, would it be met DFS in all randomized stage 2 to 3? Would it be met DFS in the ITT, uh, regardless of the stage? ending up with an overall survival, okay? It's a nice strategy, but again, you shouldn't do mistake in the order. If you look at the patient characteristic, nothing extremely special to tell you that in a proportion of histological samples facing the reality, 65% of non-squamous, the uh, PDL1 status, as you can see here, positivity was fine, it's almost 60%, which is what you expect in that trial. And basically, you can see the regimen of chemotherapy meeting the practice. So this is characteristic, very in line and very well balanced between the two groups to, um, with our practice. Remember the hierarchy? First population on the left, met. So more than one person, state 2-3A, fine. Hazard ratio 0 0.66, quite stringent. Second population in the hierarchy, you just get rid of the PDL1, and uh, this means a hazard ratio of 0 0.79, still positive, but you can see that the curve gets closer to each other in that population. Still significant. Third population, ITT population, regardless of PDL1, this didn't cross the boundaries for significance, so you cannot see it here, but it's immature, and this is still not considered as being statistically significant. So we stop with the first two populations. You'll see the FDA has stopped with the first one. Why? So this is the subgroup, as you can see, the forest plot, the improved forest plot. So what do you need to know? First of all, histology doesn't look to count. It's, it's important because sometimes you have some debate about histology. Histology is the same. When you look uh, at the stage, uh, and here we look at the key population, the first one, stage two and three be, be, behave the same, and the nodes uh, behave the same. But look at the PDL one. So PDL one uh, is, a, is a, a strange and annoying story. Strange because uh, here, on the contrary of the second population, you can see that the positive between uh, one person, more than one person, is positive, but it's marginally positive, really less than the more than 50%. And the negative PDL1 are sitting on the one line. So that's why the FDA decided to only take the first population, right? This can be understood. Um, so this is basically... Um, yeah, as you can see, the best subgroups are more than 50%. As I said before, they always benefit more. It's important to show this graph in comparison to the next trial. It's expected, but amazing in terms of magnitude of difference. 0 0.4 is really something that we like to see. 
Okay, so the one thing which is important, my ctDNA, so in that situation, it's not MRD which was measured, but they quantified kind of uh, the uh, amount uh, uh, of disease um, uh, after surgery, right? Uh, no trying to see if ctDNA was predicting or not uh, the uh, outcome with autism or best supportive care. So what you can see in all ctDNA evaluable stage two to three patients, you can see the impact of being ctDNA positive positive or negative on the outcome. However, what you cannot really see is that the atezolizumab changes something, which is a little disappointing because in both CTNA positive or negative, what you can see is that the atezolizumab doesn't really differ. I would say it is still beneficial in patients with CTDNA negative. And the other thing is, if really CTDNA measured the way it was in that trial, was uh, really sorting patient between residual disease or not, it's not very good because the CTDNA negative, they still relapse pretty a lot for patients who are supposed. So this is about the limits of the exercise. We can still not use CTDNA to detect relapse. Treatment adverse events, don't want to stop too much on that. You know how it works. And I did one, it was really a profile which was in line with the expectation for these compounds, okay? So you can see some in the autoimmune adverse events in the organs as expected with a very modest level of pneumonitis. And early OS data, so of course, extremely immature. So this is, again, you remember the last step of the hierarchy. So you can see a trend into the positive period stage two to three, but it's too early to read. Uh, I would guess uh, it will transform into a positivity in the future, but it's my guess. So as you have I've said before, because of this uh, negative PDL1, it has been granted FDA approval for stage two to three, more than one person PDL1, the left hand side, highest level of the hierarchy. Second trial, even stranger, the PERS-091, I was involved in this one, uh, which is uh, the adjuvant pembrolizumab, pretty same design to make the story short. A patient was stratified by the stage and by the PDL one of course, and remember, chemotherapy was optional. So patients were stratified by chemo, yes or not. It was led to the investigator, okay? DFS uh, was the primary endpoint in the overall population, and we had, uh, this is a chart of it, a dual primary endpoint with a second primary endpoint of DFS in the high population of uh, more than 50%. Dual means that if you meet one, you redistribute the alpha in the other one, right? So that's a, a nice way to potentially consider that both are supposed to be positive, but maybe not equally positive. Uh, one year of pembrolizumab, okay? So this is the baseline characteristic. Against nothing very special to tell you. A small proportion of EGFR and ALK. Stage issue with some as expected. Chemotherapy was delivered in the majority of patients against stage 1B and above. 15% in both arms did not receive chemotherapy. And again, distribution of PDL1 is really as expected here. Okay? This is uh, one of the dual primary endpoints, the uh, GFS in the ITT. This is the message of this trial. It's positive in all comers. Hazard ratio 0.76, uh, highly significant, uh, but of course, uh, it's a first interim analysis, deserve further reading. You can see the censoring, okay? And interestingly, the more than 50% do not do well. That's a problem of the trial. So if you allow me to go back one slide, I would be extremely annoying. The problem of these two curves, if you concentrate on the curve, this is not the blue curve. 
This is not the experimental curve, which is going up. It's you don't know why, and despite the stratification, which is pretty good and well done, the uh, control arm in this subgroup is overperforming. I don't know why, and there's no reason because remember, if PDL1, if anything, it's negatively prognostic. The more PDL1, the worst outcome you should have. So this curve is supposed to yellow to go down and it goes up. So it's a spurious exercise of subgroup analysis. There might be many factors doing that. It's very annoying for the trial, uh, and the alpha of this arm will not be given to the other one, so it's kind of a, a, a worry that I don't have any answer for you. If you look at subgroups apart from that, remember that here, again, as we uh, know, we can see the result of positivity with some recovery of some subgroups. Look here. There's one subgroup which is surprisingly benefiting is a never smoker. One subgroup which is a little bit surprisingly benefiting is a stage 1B. The stage 1B here is doing pretty well as compared to the other 12 you've seen before. Remember, they were sitting on the one. And here, what is quite interesting is a negative PDL1. In this trial, the 50 do not well, but the negative do pretty well. So you complete the picture. Does it mean all patients benefit? Maybe. The other thing which is interesting, EGFR mutants also benefit. It goes a bit with a never smoker. So you recover subgroups, okay? Uh, overall survival is extremely immature in this trial. As was in hazard ratio today are 0.87, but it's extremely immature, as you can see with the sensory. Toxicity as expected. Uh, and that's for the adjuvant trial. You know everything, and it's a, a, a matter of, of questioning uh, um, today. Are we going to have a table with colors? This is for Atizo, this is for Pembro, depending on the registration. We still don't know. And this data was still not submitted to, are still not submitted to regulatory authorities for the second one. Neoadjuvant. Why would you use neoadjuvant? So let's take the other way around. So first of all, because if you have the whole tumor, you can imagine in terms of antigen presentation to the immune system, it's probably good to have a lot of dying cells in, in parallel to the checkpoints to present to the uh, immune system uh, interesting neoantigen. The host and the immune system are fitter before surgery. You remember that everything you do in, in oncology, when you create a pressure, a negative pressure, a selective pressure, you create heterogeneity. So the problem is if you have a naive tumor, you will have less heterogeneity and more if you are in the adjuvant setting. Uh, and last but not least, it's a real way, opportunity to perform uh, opportunity trial, um, a window of opportunity trial to have the comparison of biopsy before, surgical sample after, microenvironment, and so on and so forth. And of course, it might shorten the completion of the trial using in innovative endpoints. This is a list of trials. All of them are characterized by EFS as primary endpoint. Some of them have also pathological complete response or major pathological complete res response uh, as a secondary endpoint. MPR means that in the surgical sample, there are less than 10% of viable tumor cell, MPR, okay? So we have 816 published in the New England in parallel to uh, the American Association, uh, the ACR meeting. Um, so this is a, a very interesting, a very interesting trial. And the only arms that uh, I would like you to look at is the ones where we could read at the end is the comparison of neoadjuvant chemo versus neoadjuvant chemo and uh, nivolumab. What was interesting there is um, it's only three cycle, maybe a little short, but three cycle of chemo and nivolumab. Primary endpoint is EFS, 
uh, and pathological competition. These are co-primary endpoints. This is the charm of it. It means that they immediately divide the alpha between the two subgroups without any further distribution. Statistics become very interesting. Baseline characteristic, as expected, Naxis patients have a squamous, a bit more squamous than you can uh, imagine. And there is a high proportion of stage 3. Why? Probably because we are used to give neoadjuvants in uh, stage 3 disease. So it might be we have favored this neoadjuvant strategy there. So this is a distribution of patients. I just wanted you to uh, look at one glimpse I give here, which will be con continued by my colleague surgeon, is that when we do this graph, there were lots of parameters measured. And one what we just measured was the time of the duration of surgery. Remember, is it a problem to perform surgery? And as you will see later on, it was rather the other way around. All the surgical parameters were pretty improved by the addition of nivolumab and not worsened. Primary endpoint, co-primary endpoint, pathological complete response in every site of tumor, nodes and tumor. And as you can see, you multiply your low um, pathological complete response by 10. So you go from 2.2 to 24. So this is a pretty important improvement, which is seen across all stages of initial disease. So really an amazing improvement. 24 is unbelievable for lung cancer doctors, I can tell you. This is the subgroups of the patient looking at pathological complete response. So to make a very long story, very short, all subgroups benefit. Maybe one subgroup a little less, which are the never smokers, but all subgroups benefit in terms of pathological complete response. Uh, it's interesting to uh, look at the patients who uh, have a CTDNA clearance just before surgery, it's not after surgery, it's before surgery, as compared to the one who did not. So it's not really surprising to see that the one who had uh, a CTDNA clearance uh, had a, a higher path major pathological complete response and a better outcome than the other one. Second co-primary endpoint, the uh, EFS. You can see here an improvement quite impressive with a hazard ratio of 0 0.63 uh, of the, the co-primary point of EFS with this uh, regimen, which was, again, observed across, statistically speaking, all stratum, all subgroups of patients. And you look maybe at one thing which is important for me is the PDL one You can see, again, an incremental of benefits that follows the rule with more than 50%. But all this interval overlap, it was pretty well stratified. And remember, they all have good pathological complete response. So a high level of pathological complete response, which has led to an attribution of recognition by the FDA in all of these subgroups, right? which is pretty interesting. So stage two, all of these stage benefits, stage three benefit more, but you can still see a benefit stage one, B2, with a pretty well-stratified trial. The exploratory analysis by a pathological complete response, are you allowed to consider that pathological complete response is cure? You still don't know, but when you look at this patient with pathological complete response, it's quite amazing how they benefit more than the ones who don't. It's blue versus blue, right? Uh, and you can see that maybe we are defining here a way to, to predict curability of the disease. The overall survival misses maybe two or three events to be significant. Uh, so it's 0 0.57. It's still not significant, but it will be very soon for 816. 
Treatment adverse events, we'll speak about surgery, but we're as expected on the medical oncology point of view. And on March 4th, the FDA approved a combination across all subgroups uh, of this trial because it was really properly stratified, which might not have been the case of all the trials I have defined before. So remaining questions that you have in mind is, of course, we don't know all the subgroups, so the PDL1 negative, we need to see all the curves, the smoking status, the stage of histology have to be followed, but today we believe it's benefits in all. How to use the endpoints, it will be discussed later on. Can you consider the pathological complete response to a surrogate of EFS, end of OS? Breast cancer doctors are questioning it. Should we believe in that? We need data, but it's a question of religion at the time being. How to use CTDNA clearance before or maybe after surgery? What about other mutation, STK11, keep one that might also modify the picture any other biomarker, and of course, the main question is adjuvant or neoadjuvant, and why? So with this, I thank you for your attention. The conclusion is you have understood the immunotherapy and the perioperative management has changed the landscape, has changed the way we treat, which patient you receive neoadjuvant versus adjuvant will be further studied, but probably never known. It's going to be more a consensus than an evidence of high level. And maybe additional biomarkers will help us to know if all these patients need one year of immunotherapy, which looks like to be not sustainable, uh, geographically speaking. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. So, okay. The last speaker is uh, Dr. Boris Sapesi, and he's going to give the surgeon's perspective on all of this. Well, thank, thank you very much. So um, obviously this is a uh, hard act for me to follow. You guys uh, have seen all the data, so hopefully what I can contribute over here is uh, surgeon's perspective. And, and I think that we live in the era where the communication between surgeon, medical oncologists, and radiation oncologists with all the options that have is, is absolutely paramount in, in, uh, in selecting patients for these different types of therapies and really completing, uh, the, the treatment. So, uh, just to review, as of, as of today, as a standard of care, we have this new adjuvant option for patients with stage two to stage three lung cancer. Obviously, by AJCC eight staging system, I'm talking about tumors that are greater than four centimeters in size. Um, and let's say N2 positive lymph nodes. And let's maybe not necessarily dwell on whether it's a single or multi-station. And then we have also this, uh, the, these adjuvant options. And, and obviously we have biomarker, uh, biomarkers, uh, that are important, uh, especially in the adjuvant setting based on the Adura trial. We have surgery and then obviously we also have Pacific and Pacific specifically uh, uses this word of what's resectable and unresectable and who decides on that. Is it the surgeon who decides? Is it the team who decides? What sort of factors go into this? What is the best for the patient? So I think this is where we stand today. I think it's certainly very exciting that we have all these options, but I think we need to uh, keep selecting this for our patients. So uh, I wanted to uh, bring up basically seven kind of seven points that I think about uh, and maybe kind of share them with you, you know, as a surgeon, of so what I think about when I see these patients and how I communicate with my medical and radiation oncologist. So the first point I would like to make that patients do best in the long run if they can complete all therapy. So when I see a patient as a surgeon, and I, I, I'm going to have to admit that I, I work in an institution where, you know, I'm salaried, I'm not incentivized by RVUs. So basically my goal is to select the best patient for the treatment, uh, so best therapy for the, for the patient. And, and communicate, you know, with my, with my colleagues. Because if I do an operation and, and let's say a patient has 
bad outcome or cannot recover and cannot receive an adjuvant therapy, and let's say the patient has stage two or stage three disease, I'm not doing a good service to that patient. And we all know, likewise, if patients fall off of neoadjuvant therapy, let's say, and then they cannot get it. So, so all of us are on the same boat over here. So we have to be really careful about the stratification. So I want to point this out that in Checkmate 816, first of all, the results are really amazing. This is a tremendous improvement. And in fact, if we look at how many patients were resected, the PCR rate actually wasn't 24%. It was 40%. So assuming that, that actually part of the criteria for the trial were that, that these patients were supposed to be resectable, I'm a little bit surprised by what happened with this trial and how many people fell off therapy. And, but it was a world trial, all right? It was done in Europe and Asia and the United States. And so I don't, you know, I don't want to be critical, you know, one way or the other, but, but in Europe, for some reason, nearly 30% of patients did not, had, had canceled surgery. You know, what happened over there? What, what were really the, were these really adverse events or did we not consent the right patients over there? And then when I look at the R0 resection in the United States of 65%, that also has underperformed significantly. Uh, when we look at neoadjuvant trials, my belief is that general figure should be about 90%. Of those people who give we, who we give neoadjuvant therapy, we should be able to get 90% of them to surgery, and we should achieve at least 90% R0 resection rate. So I think it's a really important thing for a surgeon. You know, when we look at this, uh, it's still it will be interesting to see what uh, what the long term data look from this uh, from this trial. You know, based on this uh, this sort of a high, high R1 R2 resection rate. Um, I also want to point out that when you when you do neoadjuvant therapy, there is a lot of questions about restaging. Do you, do you have to restage? Um, my and, and, and bias of many surgeons is that you stage patients once upfront invasively with mediastinoscopy, EBUS, etc. The restaging after neoadjuvant therapy is usually radiographic, and we and we generally do not chase uh, more biopsies. We usually proceed with resection. But what we learned from the NeoStar trial, which actually uh, in the arm A and B was uh, just nivolumab and nivo and EP. Uh, we had other arms with, with chemotherapy that, that included this. But we've, we saw this phenomenon of nodal immune flare, that immunotherapy can essentially create a sarcoid-type reaction in the lymph nodes. So I would caution everybody that if you see that there is progression in the lymph nodes after any sort of immunotherapy treatment, don't necessarily assume disease progression, but biopsy those patients, because it wasn't a trivial event. It occurred actually in about 16% of patients. We did publish this in the uh, in Nature Communications, if you want to look that up. But uh, but there were additional patients who actually had granulomas uh, on their final pathological specimen. So restaging is important, but but trust your original plan. It's more likely that the patient is not progressing and maybe has something else. You know, another question is is what is the resectable disease? We'll get to this with with, with the case, but. You know, generally, even if you think that patient may be marginal, uh, marginally resected, discuss it with your surgeon. The surgeon really should be able to read their CT scans better than radiologists to look at every structure, the bronchus, the pulmonary artery. And, and as a surgeon, you kind of have the three-dimensional picture of when I get there, where is this, where is this going to be? How can I do this? Can I do this open? Can I do this with, with the robotic assisted? Can I do it VATS? Uh, you know, what should I do? I need to control the pulmonary artery to make this safe. So there's a lot of thinking that goes on in terms of, in terms of the conduct of the operation just by looking at the scan. Make sure that you have, you know, PET scan and a good IV contrast scan to, to look at the pulmonary artery. 
And this is just this is just uh, a little anatomy review. I didn't have any sort of bloody videos over here, but but this is a really kind of a nice nice picture that you guys may have seen a long time in the medical school. But but this is what a surgeon sees in the anterior hilum, and depending on where the tumor is located, the surgeon has a picture on the CT scan. You know how close is this to the phrenic nerve? Where's the recurrent? Where's the aorta? Where's my superior vena? Uh, where's my uh, this is the left side, so not the SVC, but superior pulmonary vein versus inferior pulmonary vein. And likewise, the, the lymphatics over here, you know, the, the, the standard is really to, to extensively sample, I would say, dissect at least three N2 stations. So on the right side, it's a little bit easier because you have level nine, level seven, and two and four, which are paratracheal lymph nodes. On the left side, sometimes maybe a little bit tricky because the five and six, the level six lymph nodes are right around the, where the recurrent comes around, right there, right over here uh, around the around the arch and you have a main PA afterwards. But these level five lymph nodes are always consistent. Uh, level seven, you have to go really underneath, uh, underneath there and level nine usually uh, you get. So, um, you know, the, don't judge your surgeons by the approach. If you're going to challenge your surgeons, challenge them based on the completeness of resection. R0 resection, so adequate margins and adequate nodal dissection. So three N2 stations and one N1 station. Whether they make an incision, you know, the, in surgery, there's always some kind of jokes and some kind of saying, you know, big incision, small surgeon, small incision, big mistakes. So, <laughs> um, so you know, but, but we do, the, the, the field of surgery has truly advanced. You know, we have video-assisted techniques through smaller incision, great visualization. We have different anesthesia. We have local anesthesia uh, for with, with the blocks, with XPRL, and so patients generally go home after about four days. And so some of the measures that were, that were mentioned over here, there was a, there was a time, time to the operation for, uh, of the operative, operative time for 816. Well, if there are more thoracotomies uh, performed, and they were actually about the same, but that 20, 30-minute time is probably about just the closure, uh, you know, closure of the incisions. It seems like there were more minimally invasive uh, cases and less conversions uh, between uh, chemo-IO and, uh, and chemotherapy in 816. These are important findings. The trial wasn't really powered to this. I, I, I would not. I think these are excellent trends. I, I think it's, it's, we'll figure out what they are kind of in the future. Uh, the one thing that was really brought up that there were less pneumonectomies uh, with chemo-IO. And that's true. Uh, if you're going to have more responses, you may save more patients from a pneumonectomy. Uh, but I still, I, I still would caution surgeons and I would caution providers to assume that, that you can go on this type of a treatment and then and, and that you will have a response and then you will save the operation. I don't think that we can promise that to patients. And so that's where the judgment comes. Like if I feel that a patient would require pneumonectomy, and especially if there's N2 disease, and especially if it's on the right, I would go Pacific route. If it's on the left side, we could potentially debate if there's a level five lymph node and excellent pulmonary function test. But because we have these other options, you know, we can we can kind of decide that really the best outcomes are, are with lobectomy and mediastinal lymph, lymph node dissection. The rest of the outcomes with surgical complications, they were about the same. What I wanted to highlight over here is that there were probably some differences amongst healthcare system or how providers, even though they had they had criteria for this Checkmate 816 trial of who to enroll and who not to enroll, obviously, in the trial, and I completely believe they followed them. But you can just see that, you know, it, we, our usual length of stay at our institution for a lobectomy is 3.6 days. So this four days is, it sounds, sounds about right. Uh, why patients stayed in the hospital nine or 11 days in other, in other uh, parts of the world, um, I think that's something that maybe will come up that, that, that some uh, investigators from the trial will talk about this. And I also wanted to point out that, that 
we would wish that if there is a response, that the response comes away from the major structures, right? Because that's what we as surgeons need to divide. So if I have a tumor that is a budding pulmonary artery, I wish that that tumor shrank away from the pulmonary artery so I can, I can get around it easily and get a good margin. Unfortunately, cancers seem to find a way to, to respond their own way. And, and so this is, again, the point that when, when I look at the images and when I look at what type of operation patient would need, I really kind of make it based on the original staging and original scan. Um, and, um, and this is where intraoperatively communication with the pathologist is extremely important because as we, as we think about scaling back the, uh, the type of operations from pneumonectomy to less, you know, we don't know what this tissue is. This may be still an infl inflamed tissue from, uh, you know, from chemoimmunotherapy. And so it's important to, to send frozen sections from some areas because if there is no viable tumor, then, um, then we, can, uh, we can perform lesser resections. This is just to demonstrate that, that, that today it's extremely important, obviously, if, we, if we're considering neoadjuvant therapy, we have to rule out EGFR and ALK mutation. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, we cannot really proceed with this 816 regimen. And so in, depending on the place, it's not always a trivial thing. You know, to get tissue depends on who does it, pulmonologist, surgeon, interventional radiologist. So we have to be really kind of attuned in that and, and change our workflow a little bit to enroll patients in neoadjuvant trials. And I just want to mention that the that there are there are tremendous efforts through LCMC4 and leader trial to profile patients. Um, and in metastatic setting, we have all the drugs for all of these mutations, and there are and there are trials currently ongoing to try to enroll patients uh, in neoadjuvant setting based on uh, based on uh, these medica based on the, these drugs and based on the mutations. And this is just a schema for the for the leader trial. Um, and there are numerous trials enrolling patients over here. And so. Um, I think I'm slowly running out of time here, so I'll run through this a little bit quicker. We were going to discuss these cases, so uh, we'll talk about that. This was mostly about that neoadjuvant therapy really allows us to do research. Uh, just like Dr. Peters mentioned, you know, we give neoadjuvant treatment, and then we can look at response rates, and then, and then we can really try to sort out who the responses are. Um, and I think um, I, will, uh, I will close there. Thank you. So now we have, there are some updates uh, in, in the relevant uh, studies here that are being presented or uh, at ASCO. These are being presented on Monday. This is a neoadjuvant uh, Nevo plus platinum doublet a Checkmate 816 update, late-breaking abstract, and then the uh, Pearl study also um, a, uh, an abstract on, on Monday. So this is these are surgery cases. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so so I can I can go. This is one of my patients. Uh, so this is a 60 year old male who was diagnosed with uh, adenocarcinoma of the right upper lobe. And in fact, I showed you this. Uh, I showed you this picture over here. I showed you uh, showed you the staging. So uh, he was staged as a T3 N1. Uh, there was a tumor that was really extending from the right upper lobe bronchus into the bronchus intermedius. His, his uh, uh, MRI of brain was negative. Uh, he didn't have um, any N2 station disease, but, um, you know, essentially 3A disease. He was a former smoker. Um, he was EGFR and ALK negative. Excellent pulmonary function test. He could have tolerated right-sided pneumonectomy. Um, but uh, when I looked at this, uh, you know, I, I maybe thought, you know, that potentially surgical resection could be. But, but based on just that scan, um, um, what, would, what, what type of treatment would you offer just based on what you saw over there? 
So chemo radiation, so, chemo IO followed by surgery, chemotherapy followed by surgery, chemo RT followed by surgery, upfront surgery followed by adjuvant therapy, and Dr. Bramer's favorite, and I'm not sure. Give your opinions on this, these answers. Course. So, um, so I communicated. Uh, I communicated about this patient with uh, again with our medical oncologist, and 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 really this came down to the judgment that I felt that in the worst case scenario, pneumonectomy would be possible. This patient, uh, I thought the right upper lobe sleeve um, really, since there was no end to disease. Perhaps if there was end to disease, maybe I would push this a little bit more to the Pacific protocol. But we did treat these patients with uh, with with chemo IO. Uh, with the plan to perform surgery. Um, and uh, actually, this patient was um, on trial as well, uh, received three cycles very similar to uh, to the 816, uh, 816 regimen. I wonder... I, what do you, I, I, well, I, what do you think about the chemo RT followed by surgery option? Yes. So, uh, so there's an institutional bias. There is a... There's, I, I know, you know, University of Toronto, and, uh, and I know that, for example, Swedish... Um, in Seattle, they, they used to have a lot of bias with chemo radiation followed by surgery. Um, I know that other institutions really thought more about, you know, chemo followed by surgery. I think a lot of, lot of data, even with chemotherapy, um, that didn't necessarily demonstrate benefit that if the surgeon can achieve an R0 resection, uh, then I don't think there is any, any, any role for doubling down on the local treatment. I think what we're really trying to achieve here is some kind of a tumor regression and prevent metastatic disease and local regional control will be done surgically. That's where the judgment comes. I don't, I don't think there is a, there is a reason to do that. Plus, I know that Port now with the ALF trial kind of fell out of favor. But it is better to save radiation for maybe slightly positive margin if if if, if that sort of occurs. So so we, it is it is we have not been using uh, chemo radiation followed by surgery as a paradigm. Uh, comments, Dr. Bramer. Well, I I guess since um, there was not N2 disease, then we lean against chemo RT. Our radiation oncologists like doing that uh, for uh, N2 disease, but I think based on the Nadim 2 study that was presented earlier today, I'd push back uh, and uh, have them consider chemo IO followed by surgery. I guess one question I had for our, our surgeon is about pneumonectomy. Do you have give any pause about giving chemo IO uh, followed by pneumonectomy in these patients? Um. You know, not necessarily. I think it's. I think first of all, we shy away from pneumonectomies. Just, just, just as a kind of as a general rule, I would say, especially on the right side. Now, if there are patients who are in an ex who have exceptional physiologic status, I think that's how I would make the decision. I think left-sided pneumonectomies may be a little bit, a little bit better tolerated. But uh, I think when I look at pneumonectomy, I look at what can I achieve with the pneumonectomy relative to to the extent of the disease. Um, and what are my other options? Um, so, um, but but just because patients receive chemo IO, uh, that is not a that is not a deal breaker. I think it really comes down to patient's physiology. Dr. Peters, 
I would also probably use the 816 because uh, remember, the, the, this patient is interesting because he's resectable, he's obviously operable too, but he's, uh, I would say, in order to avoid a pneumonectomy, being able to pursue with your sleeve resection, he should not progress because you would be in trouble. So before 816, at the age of chemo only, remember progression rate under chemo induction was 20-25%. In 816, the progression rate is 7%. So the the risk is low. It does not mean existing, but it's slow. But it, for me, it's acceptable. Chemo versus chemo RT, we do the randomized trial published, um, not making me younger, huh? probably 10 years or 15 years ago in the Lancet, where we compared three cycle of chemo plus minus neoadjuvant radiation. And as you said, what is the conclusion of all this multimodality treatment is one local perfectly well-performed strategy is enough. An optimal local treatment is enough. So I would never give radiation there. But now I would feel confident 7% risk of progression that chemo IO might be the good solution for this patient. The question we will have is, what hope did you have to minimize your risk of surgery and your extent of surgery? Sometimes the surgeons give us incentive telling that they could minimize the surgical risk or the surgical, I would say, extent, and that's an additional incentive for the patient quality of life later on. So the bottom line is the entire world has changed with the release of 816 data. I mean, these answers are completely different now than they would have been six months ago. Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and, and uh, vote. Again, see what people think. Were we convincing or confusing? Okay. Um, well, this this case sort of continues. Uh, right. So you guys gave this type of treatment. So you give you give this uh, regimen, and this was your response. So this is after three cycles of uh, of, of chemo and nivolumab that you decided to give, and then you restage the patient with a PET CT scan, and this is this is what you get. Um, the bronchus is now open. There is no visible disease. Uh, there's that little tiny, this little tiny area of FDG uptake right over here. And, uh, and, uh, you know, what to do sort of in this situation. And I'm, I'm not sure that we have a, uh, I don't know if we have questions following this. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it's certainly a question for a surgeon, but I would be interested, uh, interested to, um, to hear from, you know, from our panel or, from others, I, I guess we do have questions over here. So, what would you do at this point? You, you, it looks like there is basically clinical, clinical complete response. So, would you do observation alone because of clinical complete response? Do surgery as planned, which was sort of a sleeve resection? Would you consolidate with radiation treatment? Would you try to obtain tissue to prove there is tumor there, or would you do more systemic therapy uh, since the patient has been responding so well? So, go ahead. So, you have to realize that this is very new. And a lot of the answers to these questions have not been directly tested in trials. I do think consolidation radiation is not the right option here. Could you ever imagine a world in which a complete response with neoadjuvant therapy would not result in surgery? I think not now for sure, but maybe down the road that's, that's even a possibility. The uh, biopsying, I think, would be very risky because with, um, with a dramatic radiographic response like that, I think you'd be very likely to miss real cancer if it was there. So I'm not sure I would base a decision on a, a re-biopsy. Mm -hmm. uh, and the decision about more systemic therapy after surgery 
is uh, still an open one. We don't know if even in the presence of a complete pathologic response, whether adjuvant gives additional benefit. So I would do surgery as planned. Yeah, I, I, we are not melanoma doctors. I'm, I, we, are, we can't tell anything about the meaning of complete response in lung cancer. Would it be with IO or chemo? We never have shown that complete response being pathological or radiological means cure. We need to show that. Maybe, I, maybe I'm perfectly wrong and it's going to be the case, but we still need to prove it, that complete responders will not relapse. The reason why breast cancer doctors have been questioned about the pathological complete response is because they lost the certainty that after chemo IO, if you have PATCR, some of these patients relapse later on. So you need to make sure it's not the case. So I would go for surgery this patient. Rebiopsy, it's a good question. I always tell to my young doctors in my institution, never do a biopsy. If at the end you don't trust your biopsy, right. you have the same question again. <laughs> so here you do your EBUS, it's negative, and you say, well, not, well we should do surgery anyway. Yeah. So never do a biopsy where the value of the biopsy is non only, if not, I mean, you do a if biopsy you're not only. not act on a test, don't do it. <laughs> exactly. Right. Dr. Right. Bramer? Yeah. Well, interesting, you know, just um, uh, referring back to ASCO earlier today with the results in rectal cancer where they showed, uh, you know, like 15 patients with uh, MSI uh, high uh, rectal cancer that received IO as single agent uh, before considering either DOAGVENT chemo RT or surgery, and they had a 100% uh, response rate. Obviously, they were not rectal surgeons, but they have uh, better ways of uh, assessing response um, and than we do in thoracic surgery. But still, I think the answer here is go on to surgery and make sure we've got everything. All right. Should we revote? Yeah, we did resect this patient. He had pathological complete response. And just from my standpoint, since my originally planned operation was a sleeve lobectomy, I didn't want to submit him to, because that's an advanced technique. You know, you have to cut the, the right main stem bronchus, suture things together, put a muscle flap, et cetera. I decided to actually cut the bronchus and send it to the mar send it for a margin. And we have really excellent thoracic pathologists and they saw no more tumor. I really felt that there was, that, that I should not keep operating more on this. And patient was well aware that, you know, he, he had lobectomy. He's now alive three years later without recurrence. He did not receive any additional therapy afterwards. We didn't know what to do at that point. So, so here's another case, though. So this is a 65-year-old male, kind of a similar thing. He came uh, with a kind of a similar tumor, uh, T3 and 0, on the, on the left side. It's almost really, it's kind of hard to say whether level 5 lymph node is involved there. But, um, uh, but brain MRI was negative. He was a never smoker. Um, and, I, and I just put there just for the discussion, EGFRL negative, but also excellent pulmonary uh, function tests and, uh, and, and PFS. And so what would you do based on what you saw for that patient? Would you uh, treat him again with, uh, with the Pacific? Uh, let's say he's stage two, but you can't really tell. You can't really biopsy those N2 lymph nodes at level five. So is he, is he stage two or is he, you know, is he stage three? Um, and, or would you do chemo IO the same way, followed by surgery, you know, chemotherapy, or again, chemo RT followed by surgery? Or would you just say, tell, tell your surgeon, hey, why don't you just go resect this? Um, and then tell me what it is, and, and then we'll figure it out afterwards. So go ahead, vote on this, please. Uh, I think chemo radiation Pacific would not be unreasonable, but in the current uh, era, I think chemo IO followed by surgery would be appealing to me as well. Um, 
I should have said the surgeon felt that based on the other images, CT scan, that this could be taken care of with a lobectomy. Yeah. Yeah, so Julie? It's, it's a surgical patient, right? So uh, we have strong surgery in some countries. For the surgeon, it's a, it's a patient which, who is resectable. But thinking about the old days medicine, it's potentially, let's say it might be an N2. So in N2, we liked it, maybe all these data, but we like to give the chemo in neoadjuvant. We had these old trials. It was at the time you could publish in New England with 60 patients, but neoadjuvant was giving better results than adjuvant. So on the old days, thinking about the opportunity of giving adjuvant chemo IO, stage three would still fall in the category of if I can, I prefer neoadjuvant in order to clear the mediastinal lymph nodes, maybe improve the prognosis. At least that's what all data were telling. Not sure it's right at the time of IO, but this is what I would still apply. Dr. Bramer? LCMC4, <laughs> neoadjuvant. I have a feeling that they may harbor some type of mutation but or fusion, but uh, I would stick with the chemo IO followed by surgery. Okay. okay, that's our panel. Let's revote, I guess. But that's what we did. I mean, this is we gave chemo IO, um, but uh, this is what happened. I mean, so this is after three cycles of chemotherapy plus nivolumab. This was done on trial. Uh, PET-CT scan actually show no, no response to therapy. You can actually see that there's maybe a little bit of an uptake at level 4L lymph node now. You have some, you have maybe some uptake with uh, post-obstructive uh, maybe a little bit of post-obstructive pneumonia. I mean, this is the, the type of scenario I was talking about is the level 4L lighting up a little bit because of a little bit of a pneumonia, a little bit of an infection, or, or do we overinterpret this as potential disease progression? So um, after, you, after three cycles of chemo IO, that's the CT scan, um, what do you do? Do you talk to your surgeon and just say, hey, just, just go take it out. Let's switch our, let's switch and let's go with chemo, chemo RT. Um, I guess I, um, you know, I have had a couple of, so it's, it's either, either, either or, obviously. All of these trials actually were designed for patients that were operable up front, in the opinion of the multidisciplinary team. And so this is a patient that historically would have gotten surgery up front. So I think that the argument, in my mind, would be uh, for sure, surgery, but then the question of whether or not additional adjuvant is needed is is an unanswered one because mm. all of the current randomized neoadjuvant chemo IO studies all use adjuvant. Eight sixteen doesn't, and we don't know uh, whether the and the in eight sixteen the patients who did not get a path CR didn't get a huge amount of benefit. Uh, for, from the neoadjuvant chemo IO, not significant. Yeah. And and we know in immunotherapy that they are very very good responders. Probably the one who survived five years. But for the other ones, we know from not the best trials, but that there might be a question of duration of IO, uh, and uh, and stopping too early might be detrimental. It's not the best responders, and not the top of the curve. But the other ones might need a certain exposure to anti-PD1, anti-PD1. So that's my fear about uh, 816. Is I'm not so sure that three cycles of checkpoints is, is enough. enough. And I mean, not sure for sure that I, I'm ready to think three is enough 
if the response is that way or that way. I need to, so somebody shows me it's enough, right? So it's going to be difficult to compare, but we, it's nice because BMS decided to make the same trial with a longer time, which will probably help us understanding the contribution of the longer time uh, of IO. But I don't like this three cycle. I must say, you know, I mean, certainly I can do whatever I want. So I tend to give a bit more than three cycles of IO. Yeah. So we can look at the non-path CR subset in the ongoing trials, and if there was a benefit, that suggests adjuvant health, but it's not a head-to-head -head comparison. It's a cross-trial comparison. And also compare the complete pathological response. Of course. Uh, is there a way to prevent a small number of relapse, which will happen, right, by continuing the IO longer? Dr. Bramer, what do you think in this case? I think uh, we're kind of stuck probably going straight to surgery um, and then deciding, depending on what we see under the microscope, decide whether or not you feel comfortable stopping versus giving something else. I'd be really torn and really want to push hard on the insurance company if it's not, uh, if it's not an MPR. Um, I'd be really nervous about leaving this person uh, yeah, without sure any advent the therapy. I'm not sure what the approval, the insurance approval would be with neoadjuvant. In this case, if you decided to give adjuvant Pembro or adjuvant Atizo, they, they'd probably get uh, denied. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and vote again. Surgery is planned or surgery followed by adjuvant. I think both reasonable yeah. cases. Mm -hmm. I think we can probably combine those, those answers. So, so again, I think that Dr. Um, Carbone made, a, made an excellent point over here that when we now strategize about these patients, I think this is where surgeon, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists really just need to meet up front and say, we're going to choose this strategy. And it's going to be, I think, unlikely to deviate from that. As you can see, the scans can look kind of weird after chemo, immunotherapy, but I think that if the surgeon truly felt that this is a resectable disease, I think patients should be given benefit of the doubt and at least have put a scope inside his chest to make sure that there is no metastatic disease or something like that, uh, because it's unlikely that even after three cycles that are given every three weeks, so that's nine weeks plus, you know, plus another uh, three weeks, let's say, to plan an operation, that, that the cancer, there would be such a significant hyperprogression. People have talked about hyperprogression, but biologically, it doesn't always necessarily make sense. And if the patient was healthy enough for a lobectomy up front, I think the patient should be given benefit of the doubt because you really truly find out. I mean, we say operating room is the temple of truth. And so that's where you really find out what you have. Dr. Uh, uh, Peters talked about... Uh, talked about the fact that final pathological staging truly really tells you where you stand. And so uh, complete resection was achieved over here. Margins were negative. This was a YPT3 and zero. The only question is that this patient did not respond to your induction therapy. What to give this patient now? And I think we kind of alluded to that. And Yeah, that's, a, that's a real question that we, we kind of touched on. But if they didn't respond to chemo IO, is more chemo IO going to help them? So, I'm not sure about more chemo. He received probably three cycles. Do you want to add an additional cycle where there was probably slight progressive disease? I would just do more IO. Yeah, and then uh, as we just heard, sometimes you go into with intention to operate and you find pleural implants mm. or some other reason why they can't be resected. But uh, good for this patient that that wasn't the case. All right, let's go on. This is an adjuvant study. Did, did you want to do this or should I? Uh, I, I think go this ahead. is your case. You know, this is not, it's, not, it's not your case, but 
Oh. Not my case either. Okay. But this, this is a 55-year-old Asian-American with a smoking, extensive smoking history, presents with hemoptysis, right upper lobe mass, 4.9 centimeters, uh, solitary right hilar lymph node, brain's negative, pet otherwise negative. And this is, this is a guy who went to surgery, and a right upper lobectomy was performed with an R0 resection. It's adeno, high PD-L1, driver negative, G12A mutation, one positive hilar lymph node. So um, he received adjuvant chemotherapy uh, and tolerated it well, and the pathologic stage was 2B. So then the question here is, what would you do in in the modern era with this patient? High PDL1, driver negative, complete resection, uh, positive uh, hyler node. So let's vote. I think that that's a very reasonable uh, answer in this patient. Uh, adjuvant atezo. Now, why why pick atezo over pembro? I don't think there's a lot of rationale except. The, Subsets were very weird in the Pembro study, and the high PDL1 group didn't do That's as it. well. But it's a subset analysis. It's, but it's a primary endpoint. So when you will have to attribute a, a score for this endpoint, it's at the time being, it's a bad score. So I agree, atezolizumab, a level of evidence, has a higher level of evidence and magnitude of benefit. Yeah. Dr. Bramer? Oh, definitely adjuvant atezolizumab. I'm, uh, again, I do have that question about the high PDL1 for pembrolizumab, but you could do either, um, particularly now uh, in a patient with stage two disease. I think um, giving another year of therapy is the appropriate. Yeah, great. And we haven't even touched on, you know, IO exclusion uh, criteria, but clearly. Uh, those exist in, in clinical practice. Okay, rechallenge question. What do people think about Atizo, Pembro, surveillance, or adjuvant radiation and IO? Or I'm not sure. So we have a um, bunch of questions uh, from the audience and the online. I think maybe we can just touch it. We are over time. Um, but I can, I think we can touch on them. Uh, one question was in the Insigna trial, which is randomizing PDL1 greater than 1% metastatic patients to Pembro versus Pembro chemo. And then additionally, if they randomize to Pembro, it randomizes them on progression to adding Pembro versus, I mean, adding chemo versus switching to chemo. And I think those are all really uh, interesting questions. And that study is about half accrued, is that right, uh, Dr. Right. Bramer, or something like right. that? And I think that that will directly allow us to ask certain questions about you know, what subsets of patients might benefit from biomonotherapy, but also importantly, you know, what to do on progression of biomonotherapy, whether to add chemo or switch to chemo. So I don't know if we need additional discussion on that. It's an ongoing clinical trial that I think is a high priority. Please enroll. Please enroll. <laughs> does, so another question is, does neoadjuvant immunotherapy replace radiation therapy for stage 3A disease? Dr. Peters, what do you think? Well, I was thinking about the last slide you had before. The place of radiotherapy as being 
Neoadjuvant or adjuvant? Has almost to be banned, I would say. Neoadjuvant. Yeah, well, neoadjuvant or adjuvant for me. This role of radiation in the neo or adjuvant setting, thanks to the trials which have been performed, to me does not exist anymore. Radiation is definitive or it's complementary when you have residual disease, an R1 or an R2, which is not adjuvant. Remember, adjuvant means that you don't know if you have a disease. So what I mean is, for me, neo-adjuvant radiation has been proven to be grossly and in randomized trial, not a strategy to adopt. So does neo-adjuvant, I replace radiation? No, because for me, radiation has gone, but it's still the new standard of care. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and uh, Dr. Bremer is nodding as well. How is yes. pathologic response defined in lung cancer? So, uh, in my mind, the most definitive definition is PATH-CR, that uh, if there's no tumor on careful sectioning, that that's a pretty clear result. Major pathologic response is much less clear, especially since you don't have a good assessment of the fraction of tumor pretreatment. Many lung cancers are 30% tumor before you treat them at all. And it is a more difficult judgment call to judge the fraction of tumor cells if it's if there are still existing tumor. But typically, as, as Dr. Peters said, it's defined as 10% in clinical trials. But to me, really, the, the biggest uh, decision point is PATH-CR or not. Um, and so let's just go... Uh, should oncologists or surgeons pre-specify what they want the pathologist to report, or do you leave it up to the pathologist? I guess in the current era, it's not standard of care uh, in an operative report to report percent tumor in the result. They'll usually say it's there or it's not. Um, uh well, I guess maybe it's institution-dependent, and I do work at MD Anderson, so our pathologists do report uh, do report person viable tumor for all patients who receive neoadjuvant therapy. So that's that is part of part of what our pathologists do. But uh, I mean, every pathologist should know what what needs to be reported, and and surgeon and pathologist should really communicate. Um, there's a lot of discussion about the number of lymph nodes. It's not necessarily the number that's important. It's the stations. So the stations really, the surgeon needs to needs to mark these stations in the operating room and send it to pathology and say this is level ten, this is level seven. Not nothing like this is a peribronchial lymph node or this is a hilar lymph node. We do have numbering schema, and and that's how it should be reported by the pathologist and surgeon needs to send it to pathology as such. Yeah, I, I agree. And now the, the next couple of questions are, are quick, I think, and I'm just I think I'm just going to take a stab at it. So. What do you do when these neo-IO, uh, perioperative IO-treated patients relapse? Do you try first-line uh, IO chemo or whatever? I think that's an unanswered question. But I, I would say right now uh, I would use uh, standard first-line metastatic therapy with uh, chemo-IO. Um, I would use 9 you would use what? I would use a CTLA for combination, depending you on would the, use but it, I would I would try to rechallenge uh, to depend of course of the time of progression and potentially the interval between. But I I, I might believe uh, we have some little melanoma data here again that maybe the dual inhibition might give rise to a new response. Why not trying if you have the opportunity to do that first line metastatic? So you, you're convincing me. I think that's a very reasonable <laughs> option, Dr. Bramer. Do you have a input in there? You. 
you could do bevacizumab, atezo plus chemo. Um, you could do that as well based on some very extrapolating uh, from the um, the uh, second line data that we heard from Dr. Reckkamps showing that pembrolizumab uh, plus a VEGF did seem to have response uh, at the time of resistance. Well, the bottom line now is we don't know because this is a new, a new era in, in lung cancer treatment. And sometimes it's guided by insurance decisions because I've had patients who had perioperative IO then relapse and then the insurance denies IO in first line. Really? So it depends on this insurance system. We define the line. So we first line metastatic, which helps. So, yeah. so what's the potential yeah. role of MRD testing? I think we're all excited about possible CT DNA used to decide on additional adjuvant therapy, but those are questions that are being tested currently, and we don't have a robust enough CT DNA data to make decisions right now, I would say. Um, are the decisions between neoadjuvant and adjuvant stage dependent? In other words, if you had a, a 3A, would you be more inclined to use neoadjuvant or 1B? Yeah. Scientifically speaking, if a difference has to be seen between neoadjuvant and adjuvant, it's not going to be about the stage. It's going to be about the biology of getting early versus late immunotherapy, fitness of the immune system, neoantigen load, and so on. So it's not going to be stage dependent. But here you're speaking about habitudes. How much will it be easy to convince a surgeon to let you the time to give neoadjuvant <laughs> chemo IO if you have a small stage or right. 1B high, as compared to a big stage 3 a, uh, three right. stations and two. So what I mean is probably more about the interprofessional dialogue, uh, depending on the future data to come, what you can negotiate as being neoadjuvant or adjuvant. And we've seen the bias, more squamous, more stage three. We have in mind that neoadjuvant is always still fitting a bit more the locally well-advanced disease. But probably in the future, we need to adopt consensual strategies, what do you think? So the issues are more psychological than biological. But the way I talk to patients is that once they have stage 2 disease, I tell them that the therapy that you will need is local therapy and systemic therapy. And how we sequence the therapy doesn't necessarily matter. If I have a smoker who I want to stop smoking and who has stage 2 disease and I want to do some prehab, I would say, you're going to tolerate this better up front. Let's give you an upfront treatment. Uh, we do have that bias a little bit in my institution, so I will admit that. But as a general rule, the higher the stage, the more towards neoadjuvant. But I, I would give neoadjuvant to anybody who I feel clinically meets criteria for systemic therapy somewhere in the treatment. Yeah, and I, I have a bias toward neoadjuvant in general, but Dr. Bramer, what do you think? No, I, I agree. I have a bias towards uh, neoadjuvant, but for early, very small tumors, I think a lot of them will escape my grasp and go straight. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, a question about what to do with EGFR mutant lung cancer. If you know someone's EGFR mutated, I would say you should not give uh, IO a neoadjuvant. Correct. Other I agree. disagreements? No. Question is what to do if you know someone is Ross mutated or BRAF mutated. There's unanswered questions because the, those are very small subsets of the current trials, but my inclination is also not to use IO in those patients. BRAF may be an exception if the person's a smoker. But yeah. that's or metaxon 14 when he's a smoker. Right. So two, right. two. Um, Dr. Carpo. Yeah. We, I think we should try to conclude. Oh, please conclude. Okay. 
<laughs> uh, I'm getting the, the hook here. So I think we need to conclude. They're probably going to kick us out of the room soon. So I really would uh, like to thank you for, for listening to us. I think we've had a, a very robust uh, discussion and a, and a complex area of uh, cancer therapy. And uh, I appreciate all your questions and I saw, I'm sorry I didn't get to all of them. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Longevity Foundation. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash RGK860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and Merkin Company, Incorporated.